It is a distinct honor to welcome one of the great historians of uh, the modern Western world uh, who focuses on the Eastern world, Roderick McFarquhar, who is the Leroy B. Williams Professor of History and Political Science at Harvard University, where he is the director of the John King Fairbanks Center for East Asian Research, uh, all of which is a way of saying that you are one of our great China hands, one of our experts on the history of modern China. And the new book that we've got in hand by Roderick McFarquhar and Michael Schoenhals is titled Mao's Last Revolution. That, of course, refers to the Cultural Revolution. Um, and the central figure, of course, is Mao. Before you even get a chance to say a word, uh, Roderick McFarquhar, I want to put a kind of proposition to you. Imagine that 40, well, the, we know it started 40 years ago, and we know that the great uh, leap forward took millions of lives. We know that the Cultural Revolution took millions of lives. Let us imagine playing a little counterfactual game that earlier on, still, the revolution has succeeded, they take power in Beijing, and Mao goes for a swim in the Yangtze, as he was supposedly often given to do, and he drowns in, let us say, the year 1955. Would the history of modern China have been quite different? It would have been very different. And in fact, um, uh, one Chinese leader of distinction uh, is supposed to have uh, pose that counterfactual to his colleagues, uh, saying if Chairman Mao had died in 1956, his reputation would have been secure. If he died in 1966, that's after the Great Leap Famine, still we could have uh, held up his reputation, but he didn't. He died in 1976, no comment. So yes, it would have been very different. Uh, but I think uh, what we try to say in the book, which is a sort of a common saying among China specialists, and that is, uh, no cultural revolution, no reform. In other words, if Chairman Mao had died in 55, and his colleagues, uh, like Liu Shaoqi, who became head of state and was purged from the cultural revolution, Premier Zhou Enlai, um, if they'd taken over, China would have done better uh, what, uh, than what Russia did. It would have been, it'd be sort of like East Germany. It would have taken a backward economic planning system and made it work as best it could. Uh, but they would not have had the kind of spectacular development that Deng Xiaoping inaugurated back in 79. That may reflect a kind of a strange universal historical law that uh, for things to get better, they must first get much worse. Well, I'd like to think that wasn't a historical law because God knows what one has to go through in order to get things better. But certainly in the case of China, uh, without Mao, I think we have gone too far from uh, considering the role of great men in history. But if you look back over the 20th century, uh, I think you might say it was a law that if you didn't have certain tyrants, Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, uh, the history of the world of the 20th century might have been a, an awful lot less bloody. An awful lot less bloody. One historian, uh, doing an overview of the whole 20th century, spoke of it as that slum of a century. He was uh, right. There has been more murder of innocents in the 20th century than in all the rest of human history. I think that's probably true. And possibly the lead murderer, in that he initiated programs which drove millions of people to early death, was Mao Zedong. Do you agree? I think uh, the figures for uh, killings in China 
uh, are difficult to come by. They, they vary depending on uh, what statistics you look at. And for the Cultural Revolution particularly, we don't have good statistics of people who killed or were killed. Um, before this program, I was talking earlier today with a couple of distinguished uh, uh, scholars at the University of Chicago, and one of them felt that when the local records, the local gazetteers, they're called, are fully uh, scanned, we will find the figures. Uh, the other felt that that wouldn't be the case because they just don't put them in the local gazetteers. They're too embarrassed. Well, as we were chatting, you and I, just before we went on the air, I was quoting to you Rudolf Rummel, who's done a good deal of work on what he calls democide, which includes genocide and other modes of killing by states of civilians, uh, killing them by class rather than by racial or religious group and so on. <coughs> and Rommel's estimate for the Cultural Revolution was that some 10 million Chinese went to early death because of it. You told me that you think the figure is probably much higher. No, I think that the figure that is higher than the ones you quoted from him is the figure of deaths for the Great Leap Famine. Which which came a few years Look, before. Before. And there, uh, the estimates range from Western estimates of something like 28, 30 million uh, to a Chinese estimate, a good Chinese estimate, which I've heard, which is something like 42 million. Uh, these are figures which boggle the mind. In the case of the Cultural Revolution, we really just don't know the figures. Uh, when we thought, as we used to think a few years ago, it was purely an urban phenomenon, uh, then we thought probably about half a million. We now know that it penetrated throughout the countryside, so certainly that's an underestimate. And I have heard Chinese who had high office using the figure 10 million, but where they got it from, I don't know. Well, let us, before we talk about the Cultural Revolution then, which is the main focus, of course, of your new book, Mao's Last Revolution, let us talk about the Great Leap Forward, uh, which was a great uh, collapse backward, which almost wrecked the prospect for a communist China. Uh, what was it? What, when was it initiated and why? It was initiated at the end of uh, 57, beginning of 58. And it was initiated strangely, considering the later uh, curses which Mao vented upon Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet leader. It was initiated because Mao heard Khrushchev at the 40th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution in November uh, 57, saying, we will overtake America. And he said, ah, what a good idea. We'll overtake Britain, he said. And uh, nothing happened at first. Uh, I mean, his colleagues thought it was just him sort of mouthing off. And then he came back and said, you know, get about it. And what he did was he really trashed the, the senior government officials who weren't listening to him, Premier Zhou Enlai most, most uh, notably. And that's how the Great Leap got going. But the Great Leap had another aspect. It was not just a great leap in terms of bootstrap industrialization, which was disastrous enough. It was also a great leap in that he suddenly thought, maybe we'll overtake Russia also in terms of communist socialization. How did they leap? What was the nature of uh, the, the radical undertaking? Well, the most obvious was that uh, Mao uh, committed himself to a doubling of the steel target, mm -hmm. which was totally impossible. And Joe and I, who was against the whole thing, but it kept quiet, because uh, that was his way, um, Joe and I said, okay, this is how we'll do it. And they set about setting up steel furnaces, supposedly steel furnaces, throughout the country. And in everyone na in made steel. In neighborhood backyards, as In the were. backyard steel yeah. furnace. 
and uh, everyone was making steel. You would put all your all your cooking pans into the furnace, and you didn't make steel. I went to the British Steel Institute at the time. They said these things will make iron about the quality of the time of Queen Elizabeth the first. That's 16th century. Um, but they got to the target. Um, and of course, what the, the great tragedy was that even peasants were making steel, and no one was collecting what was should have been a bumper crop. And at the same time, they were ordering students and other urbanites uh, off into the countryside to join the collectives and to uh, tremendously increase, they hoped, all the agricultural crop. Well, they were doing that. They, the sending of kids and students to the countryside was something that was regular. And it often happened that uh, people went there for a summer, and many hated it. We've got plenty of memoirs of how mm. much people hated going to the countryside. Uh, it was nasty, it was uh, it was brutish, and they didn't like the food, and they didn't like the way they were treated. Uh, but um, in the Great Leap Forward, uh, the, uh, many of the students were actually making steel in their schools. I mean, everyone did it everywhere. Well, you say it was the great disaster. What was the nature of the disaster? Why was it so great a disaster? Well, well it was a great disaster because, as they themselves discussed in later meetings, um, first of all, uh, the bumper crop wasn't collected. Secondly, they did have bad weather, 59, 60, and 61. But, as they said, the, the, the disaster was man-made because what they tried to do in a vast country the size of China with very different climates, very different soils, very different ecologies. They tried to make everyone do what the best place did and to transmit the idea of doing something like a farm in the north of China uh, would do well to a farm in totally different land in the south was madness. The basic nature of the disaster was not that they didn't get the steel that they wanted, but rather that they uh, somehow induced the famine by a total failure of the harvest. How did that to, happen? Well, they didn't collect the crops. The they, stuff grew, but they didn't, they yeah, didn't harvest. They, all the, the only people who were left behind in the villages to collect crops were old men and small kids. And the others were off, off trying to steel. make steel. But they, in the end, to, to be fair to them, they admitted a year later that uh, a, a high proportion of the steel was not steel. Yeah. They did admit it. It's, it's a how many? Uh, what's the what's the best estimate available? I know it's quite undecided and quite uh, ambiguous of how many starved to death. Well, starving to death, of course, in, in a famine is not the only way people die. They die from all sorts of minor illnesses which sure. they wouldn't be afflicted with if they were hu- not nutritive weak. deficiency diseases. Right. Yes. Um, the Western demographers think. Uh, I think the official figure now is still 20 million. That's the official Chinese figure. Western demographers estimate about 28 million. Um, a Chinese official who went around looking at records uh, ordered by the Prime Minister after the Cultural Revolution reckoned it might be up to 42 million. Why wasn't the idiot who had this crazy idea hung uh, in proper retribution for what he had brought upon, the great affliction he had brought upon the Chinese nation? Why did Mao survive at all? Well, I think there are a number of reasons. One is that he was the architect of the revolution. If they got rid of him, uh, they didn't have a Lenin to fall back on. When they criticized Stalin in Russia, mm-hmm. they had Lenin to fall back on. They didn't have a Lenin. He was Lenin as well as Stalin. So he would have been, it would have delegitimated the revolution. Or could we say he was the George Washington? Um, if you want to say that, yes. Um, 
what you but what you have to also recognize and Deng Xiaoping said this after the Cultural Revolution he said the Cultural Revolution was Chairman Mao's idea and certain evil people made use of it but the Great Leap was all our fault we all had a guilty uh, aspect to it and it's absolutely true that you can read some of Mao's colleagues who had the most crazy ideas of what they could achieve in the Great Leap they went mad all of them collectively and following upon that came the Cultural Revolution, of which we shall speak. Another great disaster, and we shall examine its history, as you do in this major work, and it's utterly readable and quite involving. I've been reading it for the last few days. Mao's Last Revolution by Roderick McFarquhar and Michael Schoenholz, that is just recently published by Harvard University Press. We return, and on to the Great Revolution, right after these words. And we return to Roderick McFarquhar, who is Professor of History and Political Science and Director of the John King Fairbanks Center for East Asian Research at Harvard University. He has also served in the UK as a Member of Parliament for some five years, as you said to me privately, before the Mrs. Thatcher came along. Um, and uh, has been a television presenter for the BBC, and a journalist for the Daily Telegraph, the Sunday Telegraph, and you were the editor of China Quarterly. That's a very significant journal. Did you did you found that journal? I was the founding editor. Yes, That's we, what I, we, I, uh, I was appointed editor in tra in '59, and we brought out the first issue in January '60. And I had the pleasure uh, last year of being at the uh, at a conference celebrating the 45th anniversary. And, of course, you've been in and out of China during all the years of the communist regime. Um, the topic of your new book, Mao's Last Revolution, is, of course, the Cultural Revolution, which began some 40 years ago. Yes, it began uh, very quietly, actually. It began in 65, so it's 41 years ago, really. But the official opening is, is 66. It began with a bad theater review, so to speak. Exactly. It began with a bad theater review. Um, and this was not noticed by anyone. It wasn't even noticed by uh, Chinese. Um, uh, but the reason why it began with a bad theater review was because the man who had written the play happened to be a Ming Dynasty historian, a historian of the Ming Dynasty, and he'd written a play which was alleged to be an allegory. And Chinese are, are big on allegories. And um, uh, the reason why he was attacked was because he was a senior official of the capital of Beijing Municipal Party apparatus. And the man they were really getting at was the Richard Daly of Beijing, who was a man called Peng. The Richard Daly. How do you, why do you define him that way? Well, because I've just heard a commercial about yes. the play about Richard Daly, and uh, Peng Jun was said by Mao himself to dominate Beijing, that so much that not a drop of water can penetrate, not a needle can get through. And he, Mao, had to attack this apparatus in order to get control of the capital in order to launch the Cultural Revolution. Now, let's really examine, as you did in an earlier book, I think you devoted a whole book, didn't you, to the question of what lay behind the initiation of the Cultural Revolution. And one figure who is of considerable prominence in the lead-up to the Cultural Revolution is Nikita Khrushchev. Nikita Khrushchev is important in the lead-up because what happened between him and Mao was a gradual uh, 
decline in the respect that Mao had for him. Mao had enormous respect for Stalin. He was prepared to play second fiddle to the leader of the communist world. Uh, but Khrushchev he saw as a, as a country bumpkin who had no ideological ideas at all and that he was very rude and uncouth. And uh, it became worse when Khrushchev's foreign policy seemed to be against the interests of China. And that's when they really began to separate. One thing that threw Mao off was Khrushchev trying to accommodate to or work out some sort of uh, modus vivendi with the United States and with President Eisenhower. That's absolutely right. And the Chinese regarded that as uh, appeasing the imperialists. Perhaps if they, they themselves had had a relationship with the Americans, which they had enjoyed and had got some benefit from, uh, he might have felt differently. But China was being excluded. And he felt that Russia was doing two things, not thinking about Chinese interests, which is very important, and secondly, appeasing the Americans. And as this got worse, uh, he began to start saying, we have to confront the Americans. We have to take on the risk of war. And Khrushchev began to think Mao was a, a madman who wanted to involve Russia in another war. This is about the time that uh, Mao started talking about America as, quote, a paper tiger. Not really a threat. Well, he talked about the atomic bomb as a paper tiger, and he continued to talk about that and said it's men who really decide battle. And, of course, America, too, was a paper tiger, and he tried to prove that to Khrushchev. But Khrushchev and the East European leaders uh, in the communist countries in the satellites also felt the same way. Uh, Khrushchev felt that Mao was going off his rocker and that what he wanted to do was to involve Russia and America in a nuclear exchange and China would stand apart and survive. And the rig that really frightened him was when Mao, in a speech in Moscow, in front of all the assembled leaders, said, after the First World War, Russia became communist. After the Second World War, Eastern Europe, China, and North Korea, and so on. After the Third World War, we will build a communist world on the ashes of a dead imperialism. And if China loses 300 million people, so be it we'll still have socialism. The very moment at which I should really put to you the, the psychologist's question, what sort of nut, or would you consider him a nut, was Mao Zedong? He was a utopian, he was a romantic, uh, and above all, he was not a organization man. Organization, he didn't have time for the nuts and bolts. He wasn't a Stalin, he was more like Hitler. Um, he had the big ideas. And what he was good at was making revolution. He loved upheaval, he enjoyed revolution. Um, and what uh, he realized as they settled, seemed to be settling into five-year plans in the middle 50s, was that if they went on like this, into a Soviet-style development process, he, Mao, would have no role. He wouldn't be setting the agenda. It would be Zhou Enlai and Liu Xiaoqi and others who'd be setting the agenda. And that's when he had the idea of the Great Leap Forward. And later, of course, the Cultural Revolution. The Cultural Revolution essentially is an attack upon uh, those who are following or beginning to move down the, quote, capitalist road, or who are, quote, revisionists. It's We've got to get back to pure, serious communism and get rid of all the, uh, right. the people who have... Uh, who are either betraying us or merely slipping away because of their right. own personal culpability or their own personal avarice. Yes, uh, that, was, uh, that was the language that they had. And they tried to prove this by suggesting 
that in fact this is what was happening in the Soviet Union. Uh, Mao was just just 20 years too early, that's all. Um, they took loads and loads of quotations from the Soviet press, and they said, see, there's corruption in Russia. It's going capitalist. We are about to pause briefly for an update on the news, and then what we need to pursue is just how he got the Cultural Revolution started. Who were the enemies and who were his troops? Uh, I will suggest to our listeners that among the troops were high school kids. They were very important in the beginning of the Cultural Revolution. And high school kids are full of all sorts of uh, strange impulses, seeking and searching for a quick release. Much aggression, much sexuality, and give them a chance to humiliate their teachers and their professors, and you may really have great appeal for them, and you may really throw the whole structure of the nation into discard and disorganization. That was, I think, what began uh, the first wave of the Cultural Revolution. We return to Roderick McFarquhar to talk about that and the further trends and the further stages after we pause for a quick update on the news from Rob Hart. And we return to Professor Roderick McFarquhar of Harvard University, uh, drawing from his excellent and very important new book, indeed it's a precedent-setting book, Mao's Last Revolution, which is just published by Belknap Harvard. Um, I was stealing your thunder just a bit by saying that the first shockwave of troops were high school kids. Is that right? Actually, the strange thing is that they weren't. Uh, the strange thing is that uh, Mao and his uh, principal agitators uh, thought that the main student uh, rebels would be university students. And so they sent their emissaries to Peking University and other universities to stir things up there. What they didn't realize, of course, is what you said before the break, which is that high school students are even more prone to do all sorts of mad things. A chance to cut classes and get revenge on those annoying teachers. Uh, well, absolutely. And uh, unlike the, uh, the university students who are thinking about their professional posting over which their teachers might have a very important influence, the high school students are not there yet. There's another factor which we bring out in the book, and that is that the high school students were all locals, and many of them were the children of the elite, and their parents knew each other, and they knew each other, and they were very arrogant about their status as compared to the teachers, whereas the university students came from all over China. It was a meritocracy recruited from all over China. They didn't know each other. Now, as these students, both high school and university, were urged on to restore the revolution, to restore revolutionary fervor. What, in fact, did they do? Well, uh, <coughs> they were at first puzzled as to what was supposed to be the, uh, the target. They were told they were aiming at old customs, old habits, and old culture, and so on. And frankly, everyone, including p members of the party, thought it's, oh, it's the, it's the usual suspects. And the, the party officials at the head of ministry would say, you know, bring out some of the usual suspects and we'll criticize them. And so the, uh, the students went for their teachers, as you said. But I have to emphasize that this is very unusual in China, uh, in the sense that respect for teachers is something that's been imbued for thousands of years. Um, so that was unusual, even though the high school kids did feel superior in class status to their teachers. But of course, uh, this started in mid-1966, but by the end of the year, 
when some of the leading members of the party, namely Head of State Liu Xiaoqi and General Secretary Deng Xiaoping, had been purged, people began to realize that it's mum and dad who are the targets. It's party officials who are the When targets. you say they were purged, uh, they were not treated the way Stalin treated his uh, high-level adjutants. They weren't sent to the Lubyanka to be uh, essentially killed by the KGB. Mao didn't have a list which he ticked off, like Stalin supposedly did, no. and uh, got people killed. He actually didn't want to do that because that would have that would have been denied the actual purpose of the Cultural Revolution. So what was, happened to... It was to get these young people all fired up and do it for themselves. So what happened to Deng Xiaoping, for example? Well, Deng Xiaoping was protected throughout the Cultural Revolution by the chairman, even when he was in disgrace. He was disgraced twice by Mao. Uh, he was protected in that he, he, Mao would not agree to let him be expelled from the party, which was very important. And secondly, he was protected because he was sent down to the countryside, but he was given a job working half-time uh, as a fitter in a factory. Whereas Liu Xiaoqi, the head of state, uh, he was allowed, his illnesses were allowed to get worse. The doctors clearly felt they shouldn't treat him properly. And, no, and Mao could have, with one word to his emissary, mm -hmm. Zhou Enlai, the premier, could have stopped all that and said, treat this man properly, he was head of state. But he didn't, and he died in anonymously and very, very ill. But you still didn't have the sort of bloodletting that Stalin engaged in so regularly during those Moscow trials in the mid-1930s and beyond, where he literally ordered the death of uh, tens of thousands of high-level Bolsheviks who had been his comrades in the very beginning of the revolution. Yes, yeah, Stalin had an inferiority complex with most of those uh, the top people that he had killed, and he wanted to get them out of the way because of that inferiority complex. Mao didn't need a, to have an inferiority complex because he had become leader before the revolution, he'd won the revolution, and he was Chairman Mao. He was almost a godlike figure even before the Cultural Revolution. So that was not his compulsion. His idea was unleash the, rung, the young people because we need a new generation of real revolutionaries. Now, we, the Maoist generation, we had a real revolution against the Nationalist Party and against the Japanese, but they don't. So unleash them against the party. Now, we've talked about how the uh, Great Leap Forward killed millions. We've got some commercials coming in an instant, but I want to pose this question and hope we can address it directly thereafter. How did the Cultural Revolution kill its millions. It seems to have also dispatched 10 or 12 million people in addition to those already killed during the famine induced by the cultural, rather by the Great Leap Forward. We return directly to Roderick McFarquhar in pursuit of the democidal history of the uh, cultural revolution after we pause for this. And again, we return to Roderick McFarquhar, professor of history and political science at Harvard University, author of the new book, co-author with Michael Schoenholz, of the new book, Mao's Last Revolution. We were focusing in on the damage done by the Cultural Revolution. To begin with, again, it's a democidal outcome. It kills millions of people. How does it do that? Well, I want to just talk about the figures, and then we'll talk about how, how it happened. Um, we don't know how many people were killed in the Cultural Revolution. Uh, Ten million is a figure I've heard from senior Chinese, mm. but never given me uh, chapter and verse. Uh, now that we know that it was a big thing in the rural areas, not just in the cities as we used to think, 
the figures that some people suggest is a million, million and a half. But the fact is we just don't know. And we may never know because they may never publish the figures. As to how they died, they didn't die in the Stalinist way that millions were sent off to be executed. Uh, they died because uh, they killed each other. Uh, it was a revolution in the sense that Mao said, make revolution, and as part of that, people killed each other. Red guards killed people. Students killed people. Killed them for what ostensible reasons? For Because they weren't revolutionary, because they had a bad class background, because they did something silly. There were all sorts of... We have one or two cases in the book, which I can't elaborate because it take too long, but they, they killed them for the most ridiculous of reasons. Let me offer you a contrast, or, uh, or possibly a parallel. Go to another revolution of sorts, namely the one in Cambodia. When Pol Pot and his Khmer Rouge were in power, uh, they killed, we know, possibly as much as one-third of the total Cambodian population, surely at least one quarter. One of the cues to designate people who deserved to be executed or starved to death and worked to death was if they wore eyeglasses, because that would mean they were sort of intellectuals. They were at least literate, therefore they were contaminated by Westernism and by Lord knows what, and they could not attain pure socialist, communist uh, intensity of devotion and of motivation. Could that is that equivalent to what might have happened in China? No, I think that the Khmer Rouge, I mean, they literally said, we are starting from year zero. Yeah. And they eliminated, as you rightly said, all those people who were intellectuals, bourgeois, and people who could never be made into revolutions. I think the Chinese, they weren't interested in that. They were not interested in a genocide of one class. They had done their, their class sorting out in various campaigns long before the Cultural Revolution. What the Mao was doing in the Cultural Revolution was unleashing these people. And the the result of that was that they killed each other. But it wasn't just young people killing each other in internecine warfare, because once they got this, they seized power from party officials and government officials, they were then vying with each other as to who should have the power. And that's when the killing started. What was in Mao's little red book, or what is the nature of Mao Zedong thought, which supposedly uh, inspired them in all of these efforts? Well, Mao was not really a true Marxist in the sense that he believed uh, that uh, the economic base of society was what determined everything above it, the class structure and the political structure and so on. Mao was exactly the opposite. He was very Chinese. He believed that the political superstructure, to wit himself, could shape the economic base by shaping the people in China. In other words, if you have a good political system, you'll have a good economic system. Not if you have a good economic system, you will have the right classes above. That's very counter-Marxist, isn't it? Absolutely yeah. counter-Marxist. Yeah. And what was in the Little Red Book, uh, they were just one paragraph, one sentence uh, selected. They were like little sort of aphorisms, you know, get organized, that kind of thing. Yet we had scenes, and we saw this even in the West when we didn't really have an opening to China, of millions of kids in the streets waving the little red book as a sign that they were true revolutionaries. It wasn't just uh, the kids. If you, The most terrible thing to see, because it's so lacking in dignity, is people like Premier Zhou Enlai, a man of enormous ability, a man of enormous talent, uh, even though a man of less courage, uh, waving the little red book mm. beside Chairman Mao. And uh, Marshal Lin Biao, one of the great generals of the Civil War, uh, waving the little red book because by that time 
they had created Mao as a demigod. And they knew that if they didn't follow along with worship, it wouldn't just be that they'd discourage the kids, <laughs> they would uh, anger the chairman. He, would, he lapped it up. I must ask you to enter my realm of contemplation. That is, I mean to put a psychological question, or a socio-psychological question. Um, in that century, we had many maximum leaders who somehow, by propagandistic routines or maybe by their intrinsic nature, managed to achieve a kind of charismatic force that they could mobilize masses and could, in fact, get masses of people to abandon their intelligence and their individuality and follow the dictates of the maximum leader. Quite apart from Stalin and Hitler and Mao, we have lesser figures. Mussolini had a similar effect. Uh, even Salazar in Portugal and Franco in Spain had such effects. Uh, Horty in Hungary for a while exerted that kind of force. What does this tell us about human nature, or was it somehow a particular pathology of the 20th century? Well, I, I'm actually interesting you should ask that, because I'm actually teaching a course uh, seminar on this uh, subject of uh, leadership. And we are looking at uh, the, uh, the maximum leaders, and we also will look at Roosevelt and at mm -hmm. Churchill. Um, and I hope at the end of the uh, at the end of the course with my uh, with my uh, student colleagues uh, to have got some kind of a handle on your question. I think the issue is that uh, leadership is always important. Uh, people want to follow a leader. John Kennedy had that kind of effect in the United States. Uh, Reagan, to some extent, at least among some of the people, had that effect. Yes, but both Kennedy and, and Reagan had very active congresses uh, with the opposition party speaking strongly, and, uh, and Kennedy, if he had not been assassinated, might have had much more trouble as he went on. Uh, Democrat And Churchill certainly was voted out of office right after the war. Uh, there's a difference between what happens in democracies to leaders of that sort and what happens in those other countries. No, that's absolutely right. There's a difference because they are democratically elected. Um, nevertheless, there is a similarity in the social psychology sense, which is wh where you mm -hmm. wanted us to be. Uh, I would suggest uh, in that leaders are looked for, and people want men on white horses in less developed countries perhaps, but I don't think that's totally something that people are not uh, familiar with in more democratic countries. Look at General MacArthur. He was seen as a leader, a leader who didn't quite make it. And one always has to think of Truman being a very great uh, president in the fact that he sacked this military figure of such enormous prestige. But obviously there's a great difference between uh, the countries. And I think what you have to look at in the case of Germany and the case of Russia is you have countries which are trying to rebuild themselves and you have to have a figure I suspect who personifies the will to build and Hitler personified the German anger at what happened to them in World War I and mm -hmm. particularly after World War I and <coughs> Lenin and Stalin were trying to build a modern Russia on the ruins of uh, the Tsarist regime so people had to have a person to look to. India had to have Nehru. Mm. China had to have Mao. Someone who collects the wills of all the people towards the mammoth tasks which have to be done. Was there, during the years of the Cultural Revolution, uh, an undercurrent of opposition to Mao, 
and was there on the part of some portion of the party elite or of the intellectual elite was there a recognition that he had gone mad and had done terrible things or was everybody yielding I think that the closer you were to Mao, the less likely you were to to do anything but yield. And that's true. Because of, of fear of your life? Not a fear of your life, just fear. Mm. Um, uh, fear is something which is greatly underestimated as a factor in politics. Mrs. Thatcher, whom you've interviewed on this program, inspired fear in her cabinet colleagues. And she couldn't send them off to the torture chambers, uh, but she inspired fear. And Mao could be withering in his contempt and in his scorn for people if they did not follow him. And, so, and people were scared stiff. When Zhou Enlai had to write a self-criticism in the, uh, in the 50s, he spent days working on it in a high sweat, according to his secretaries who later related all this. So I think fear is a very important factor. Uh, in the relationship between these leaders. Zhou Enlai was required by Mao to write a self-criticism? Yes. That would be the equivalent of any of our presidents requiring the vice president to confess what a fool and what a what a blackguard he was. Right. And Zhou Enlai uh, criticized himself even when he shouldn't have. I mean, after the Great Leap, there was a big conference to f to try and analyze what happened. And the only leader, apart from Mao, said, well, I've got to take responsibility because I'm the, I'm the big cheese. But he didn't really mean it. Uh, the only leader who systematically said, I did this wrong, I did that wrong, I did the other wrong, was Zhou Enlai, who was the one who was most against the Great Leap because he felt that's the way to preserve myself. What was the significance of the American opening to China? Um, Nixon's visit to China. Now, did that come after the Cultural Revolution? No, during. It was during, wasn't it? Yes. Did that? How did that affect the dynamics of the Cultural Revolution itself? Well, since, as we said, uh, discussed earlier, since uh, Mao had accused Khrushchev of appeasing the Americans, and uh, when Khrushchev says, well, I want to uh, avoid a nuclear war, Mao says, well, that's expedient. Well, what was the invitation to Nixon but expedience? Mm -hmm. Mao was genuinely frightened at the end of the 60s that the Russians were going to take out his nuclear establishment, perhaps even to bomb Peking and to try and kill the leaders of China. Uh, we now know that, and we detail that in our book. And I think that the objective of his invitation mm -hmm. to Nixon, leave aside Nixon's motives, uh, was that he wanted to open... Uh, he wanted to be able to play an American card against the Russians. Just as we were supposedly, or Nixon was supposedly, playing the China card. Exactly, exactly, against the Russians. Mao was playing the American card. Did it have any... But it did have a big effect upon the genuine cultural revolutionaries who were following Mao, uh -huh. his closest colleagues. They couldn't understand what he was at. And they, they had to have an elaborate explanation. The explanation was, look... During the anti-Japanese war, we allied with America and Britain because they were less bad than Japan. Same way, we're allying with, not allying, but we're moving towards America because they're less bad than Russia. But that was expedience, and Mao had argued against expedience. There is at least one attempt during those 10 years of the Cultural Revolution to, um, to revolt against uh, Mao and to displace him. And it comes from it's organized by the son of one of his former colleagues. Well, 
uh, Marshal Lin Biao, who was chosen by Mao to be his uh, his heir and had the unusual honor, which he, I think, would rather not have had, of being placed in the party constitution as heir apparent, uh, Mao suddenly realized that by doing this, he had given Lin Biao the kind of power which only he, Mao, had had up to that time. And when uh, Lin Biao, by issuing an order, was able to get most of the armed forces of China to move, Mao realized that this man had power which he shouldn't have. So he started to move against Lin Biao. And Lin Biao's son, we are told, all the facts of this episode are not clear yet, but we are told that Lin Biao's son attempted, in what turns out to be in a most ham-fisted kind of way, to assassinate Chairman Mao. But it, um, the plot fell uh, a floundering, and Lin Piao and his wife, and is the son with them as well, yes. they get on an airplane trying to get out of China, and the plane goes down in Mongolia. Yes. They all die. Yes. But there that's is the official story. Yes. That's the official story. What do you think is the likely real story? We don't know. And uh, there was a book which came out some years ago which was had a great deal of, uh, of convincing material in it about uh, Chinese, the Chinese scene, in which it was suggested that Lin Biao was actually, uh, his car was rocketed by the Chinese army after he just had dinner with Mao. Yeah. Fascinating operatic scenarios. And we shall return to the history of the Cultural Revolution in conversation with Roderick McFarquhar after these words. And we return to Roderick McFarquhar. Our conversation is based upon, but can hardly do justice to his new book, Mao's Last Revolution. And that, of course, is a reference to the Cultural Revolution. I found a quotation from an interview given by a uh, now middle-aged person who was a kid in the Cultural Revolution. He was an urban uh, proletarian mm -hmm. kid. And this is what he says. I took part in pretty much all the big events, being reviewed by Granddad Mao and Tiananmen, destroying the four olds, the great link-ups, armed struggle against anything that involved beating people up and smashing things and taking stuff. Man, this is an English translation in colloquial terms, man, it was fantastic. Me and my buddies got baseball bats and worked our way up the street from south to north. We must have busted every damn shop sign along Chidan. Just try doing that today. The cops would be all over you after the first hit. But back then, they didn't dare. We were effing red guards. Uh, we were destroying the four olds. Rebellion is justified. That was a slogan that Mao gave them, I believe, wasn't it? Uh, breaking into the Nationalities Palace, putting the British Rep Office under siege. Man, I was there for all of it. How could you miss it? It was full on. Then the British place was torched. They never found the guy who lit the fire. If they could get their hands on him today, he'd be finished. Burning up foreigners, talk about big time, they'd execute the guy three times over. But back then, foreigners weren't worth a hair on your word for penis. They were the object of revolution. There's, that sounds like, a, sounds like a mad American adolescent at his worst, uh, on, a, on a high of some kind. But this is, as I say, a middle-aged person who runs a, a shop of some kind in Beijing right now. But he's remembering those glory days. It sounds like pure adolescent release of mad aggression. I've heard this kind of talk, not quite in such vulgar way, yeah. but from a woman who was a 16-year-old, I think, 
1966, and she talked about how empowering she used. You could see this guy doing killing. Yeah, you could see him killing people on that street as they worked their right. way up and down. And uh, you can, she said, you know, you had such power over your teachers, over people in general, and you were going to use it for good things, but. Um, Mao had unleashed them. That's why they felt they could do this. And the public security chief, uh, on instructions, in effect, from Mao, uh, said to his policemen, you know, let them do what they have to do. If some people get killed, well, uh, some people get killed. Was there anything in Chinese national character or in Chinese history that made that all the more possible? Well, I think if you look back in Chinese history, there have been, of course, some terrible uh, rebellions which have been full of slaughter, the Taiping Rebellion, only as recently as the 19th century. But I think we have to look more closely at what the communists themselves did. And uh, to be fair to them, Deng Xiaoping's uh, sum-up of the Cultural Revolution uh, after it was over said this, and that is that the Communist Party of China, taught in effect by Stalin's party in Russia, uh, had class struggle as a basic element in its means of ruling China. And the first few years as the Chinese Communist Party was taking power was full of class struggle. It was class struggle against counter-revolutionaries, whether real or imagined, and people were killed. It was class struggle against intellectuals, and they weren't necessarily killed, but they often committed suicide. It was class struggle against shopkeepers and and industrialists and so on. And endlessly it went on, and they committed suicide. And once they came to power, it was class struggle against whatever the Chinese equivalent of kulaks might be. Well, that, well, that was in peasant, that in, uh, property holders. Yeah, but there were there weren't very many kulaks. So you did not have the uh, the kind of kulak uh, farmers in China that you had in in Russia. They had to seek around and look around and try and say, well, he must be a landlord because he's the richest but person here. They, they killed here. a million or two landlords, did they not? They certainly killed a million or two landlords, but certainly a million. Uh, but the definition of landlord was very arbitrary. They had a they had a definition, but in order to find someone in a poor northern village, where the landlord was barely richer uh, than his relatives, and they were normally quite uh, closely related in the villages, uh, you had to, to work very hard, and you designated him a landlord, and it was very difficult sometimes. Uh, to get people to denounce him because they didn't know why they were denouncing him except they were told to. Now, I'm not saying there weren't genuinely cruel rapist landlords in China. There were. But what I am saying is that they had a program which was designed partly to get out the landlords but also to tell the peasants, we're the boss and we're throwing out those people who had a relationship with the previous government the nationalist government and we're the boss. And as a result of that bloodletting in land reform, collectivization, was much easier than it ever was in Russia. Mm. The peasants had learned the lesson. But you're saying that these kids were easily unleashed because the whole history of the rise of the Communist Party and then the achievement of the Communist Revolution had been a history of violence for the, the prior 30 or 40 years. Yes, but I'm thinking mainly of uh, violence during the years prior to the Cultural Revolution when you had campaign after campaign yeah. after campaign and people died. And uh, the kids, uh, particularly the kids in Peking and in Shanghai, uh, uh, who had parents who were very high officials, they learnt it from their parents, their grandparents. How does the Cultural Revolution come to an end? It comes to an end only when Mao dies, and only after he dies when his immediate 
followers, the so-called Gang of Four, including yes. his wife, are, are arrested. We haven't said much about what's her name, Chang Ching. Zhang Ching. Zhang yes. Ching. We haven't said anything about her yet. A fa fascinating figure. Uh, there was a biography of her by some young woman who I think was part of Yori Keep at Harvard, wasn't she? She was briefly there, but she wasn't really at Harvard. Roxanne Witka. That's the name. Uh, yeah. she, had, uh, she had a bittersweet experience because she went to China and, and quite unexpectedly, um, Zhang Qing decided that she would do for her what Edgar Snow had done for Mao. He would publicize mm. her to the world. And she had all this fascinating interview stuff, uh, notes and also tapes. Um, but when she left uh, China, uh, the, the, she had to leave the tapes behind. Zhou Enlai said they would be looked at and she would get them sent. Mao got very angry that Zhang Qing had done this. She never got her, her tapes. Uh, and she, her book was written actually after Zhang Qing was arrested. And the bittersweetness is of it, and the problem for her, I think, reading that book, uh, was that on the one hand she was grateful to Zhang Qing. This was a unique opportunity for a young scholar. And on the other hand, Zhang Qing was not a very nice person. So how do you balance that? And I don't think she totally she, successfully she had, did she it. She had been Mao's fourth wife, I believe. Well, he had a wife who was arranged for him, whom he never cohabited with. Then the, supposedly the love of his life, uh, he married back in the 20s, and she was executed by the nationalists. Then the woman who was with him on the long march, uh, and uh, uh, whom he divorced, and then married Zhang Qing. So third actual wife. She was an actress of some kind. She had been an actress in the film and stage. Uh, and what's interesting about her role in the, in on the stage was her favorite role was uh, Nora in a Doll's House, which of course is about a woman who doesn't want to be just a woman, mm -hmm. just a housewife. Uh, the problem for Zhang mm -hmm. Qing as opposed to Nora, Nora could leave her husband. Zhang Qing couldn't leave her husband because her husband was the source of her power. She was bypassed um, in that he had lots of other relationships with other women and maintained a harem of young actresses around him, but she retained some political power during those years. She certainly retained political power. As she said at her trial, um, uh, I was Chairman Mao's dog. When he said, bite, I bit. When I, he said, bark, I barked. Uh, and she was very useful to Mao because she was totally dependent on him for her political position, and she would do what she uh, what he wanted, and she had the same ideas. And she he used her to initiate the Cultural Revolution. That's right. She went down to Shanghai to get a couple of propagandists to uh, write this article to attack a senior member of the which, Peking Party. Which apparatus. we talked about before. That's the signal that right. sets it all going. But at the shortly after his death, she is arrested together with her her so-called gang of well, three others. Gang, gang of four. Gang of four. A phrase which has now passed into the language. It has indeed. What were they supposed to be doing as a gang, well, according to the accusations against them? Well, the accusations were, and this is where, the, uh, where Deng Xiaoping and his colleagues after the Cultural Revolution tried to finesse blaming Mao totally. They blamed him for the idea. He had a bad hair day, and he had a bad idea, the Cultural Revolution. But, but all the, the bad things were done by Marshal Lin Biao and his the followers. King is, the king is ill-advised. Right, yeah. and by Zhang Qing and her uh, gang of four. And they all were they were tried. It was a famous show trial of there was a, it Qing. was like it was like a Nuremberg show trial, yeah. uh, by which I mean that uh, the guilt was assumed, and all that was decided was uh, what was going to be the sentence. 
uh, Jiang Qing and her principal uh, collaborator uh, were given uh, death sentences, which were suspended. Uh, the principal collaborator uh, served 20 years and was released and died a year later at his home. Uh, Jiang Qing uh, got cancer and committed suicide in the hospital. Hmm. Um, time for some commercials. We have not yet come to modern China with the real aftermath of the Cultural Revolution and the return of Deng Xiaoping, which makes a great difference in the modern history of China. Right. We'll talk about that with Roderick McFarquhar directly after these words. Let us come to beyond Mao's death, beyond the uh, trial and imprisonment of his wife, um, which was certainly symbolic of the end of the Cultural Revolution. Deng Xiaoping is, has, is restored for the second time in his career. Actually, uh, yes. He was brought back by Mao because Zhou Enlai was dying, and the man whom uh, Mao had selected to succeed him after Marshal Lin Biao had died uh, was clearly not competent to do it. And Deng Xiaoping was someone who would give the, the generals a feeling that uh, uh, after Mao there would be some stability. He's one of the veterans. He's from the Long March he, generation. He's not only of the Long March generation, he was a very close Mao groupie back in the 30s, mm -hmm. which is one reason Mao preserved him and one reason why Mao knew he was very good. But then Mao realized that Deng Xiaoping would not preserve the Cultural Revolution. He dismissed him again. And Deng was very lucky to be dismissed twice. Firstly, because when he was dismissed at the beginning of the Cultural Revolution, that meant he had no blame for the Cultural Revolution. And secondly, when he was brought back by Mao, that showed that Mao thought he was highly competent. He was able to take over from Premier Zhou Enlai, who was dying of cancer. And thirdly, it meant that Deng Xiaoping was seen as a person in the one year that he had power, which was 1975, that he was the person who was trying to restore sanity to the country and the economy. What do you think the conversation was like when uh, he gets together with uh, the Politburo or whatever, and Mao has been buried, and they sit there in the ashes of the Cultural Revolution? What do they say to one another? Well, Deng Xiaoping's not there. Not you see, yet. Mao is succeeded by uh, his final heir, is a man called Hua Guofeng, uh, oh. whom everyone has forgotten. Uh, poor guy. Including me. Uh, yeah. And uh, Hua Guofeng did not want Deng Xiaoping brought back because he knew that he'd be a danger to him. Uh, but he couldn't resist the pressure. And the generals all said, we will not confirm you in power if you do not bring back Deng Xiaoping. And it's very difficult to understand how this happened because Hua Guofeng was chairman of the Communist Party, chairman of its vital military affairs committee, and prime minister. More posts than Mao or Zhou Enlai had had. And yet he could not stop Deng Xiaoping coming back to power and then taking over power. How soon does Deng Xiaoping take over? He comes back into the Politburo in 77 and he takes over power in December 78. So what then are they saying to one another? Well, he's saying a number of things. One, we've got to rehabilitate the victims of the Cultural Revolution, especially Liu Shaoqi, the former head of state who died. Secondly, we, we have to explain to the people what happened, and that's why they issued a resolution. And thirdly, look around you in East Asia. All these countries who were nothing when we started the Cultural Revolution, except possibly Japan was just getting going in '66. Now they're all economically prosperous. Even Chiang Kai-shek, whom we beat hollow 
and sent fleeing to Taiwan. Even he's prosperous. What have we been doing, we Chinese? We've been tearing ourselves apart. We've got to change, otherwise people will throw ourselves, throw us out. And so he starts a program. He doesn't have any plan. The phrase is, we'll cross the river by feeding for the stones. And it gradually, they liberate the peasants, first of all, from the thraldom of the collective system. And once the peasants are liberated, they start doing all sorts of things. They allow independent freeholding. Family farming starts. Farming again. Family farming starts. The land is ultimately not theirs, but Mm. family farming starts. Secondly, uh, and this is where the industrial revolution of the last 25 years started, uh, they they inaugurate a tax uh, regime which allows local authorities to retain monies with which they start township and village enterprises, the so-called TVEs. And it's the TVEs who are trained by Bloomingdale's, for instance, how to manufacture quality stuff. And I've talked to the head of Bloomies, and he told me how it was that they had this big China uh, exhibition of goods in 1980-81, and how they had trained them to do it. And it was these collective enterprises that were the mainstay uh, at the local level of the boom in the 80s. In the 90s, you start to see the beginnings of private enterprise, true private enterprise. Also, they invite in a lot of foreign investment capital, don't they? Yes. uh, uh, They have enormous billions and billions of dollars of direct foreign investment. And uh, I think that they are reported now to be on the verge of having $1 trillion of of reserves. Uh, There are some people who argue that all this foreign direct investment is not a good idea, uh, that they are too much depending on it, and that they should be generating their own investment by encouraging private enterprise, which they're not really doing. Private entrepreneurs have lots of strikes against them still, even though they're doing well in many cases. There are millionaires and indeed some billionaires in China today. It's a total change from Mao's China. And the ironic thing is that this is exactly what Mao wished to prevent. But they they contradict what we take to be a platitude of absolute truth. It was given by Milton Friedman in the very title of his most popular book, Capitalism and Freedom, namely that the two go together, like a horse and carriage, so to speak. If you've got capitalism, that will generate freedom. That has not really happened in China. And it doesn't have to happen. Uh, I think that, in fact, what what is going to happen is that there's going to be freedom, but it's not going to be because of capitalism. It's actually going to be because of the Cultural Revolution. You see, what Mao did during the Cultural Revolution, what Deng did in to recompense China for it afterwards, is the following. Deng said there must never be another Mao. So you've got leaders today who are maybe canny infighters, but they're not Mao. They're not going to be able to take the country down the wrong path. The party during the Cultural Revolution was trashed. No one has real respect for the party any longer. And Mao thought, which was hyped during the Cultural Revolution, mm-hmm. Marxism and Leninism, no one respects that any longer. No one. But they still call themselves communists. Of course they do. What do they mean by Be- that? They mean by that that the party is a communist party, and if they don't call themselves communists, they don't say that Marxism, Leninism, Maoism thought must be respected. They've got no legitimacy. But it's a very fragile regime as the Tiananmen events showed. Had it not been for eight octogenarians, retirees, deciding that the troops should be brought in and they had the power and the authority to do it and to fire on the people, 
you the thing might have changed totally in China. What would the consequence have been if they had allowed, if they hadn't fired upon the students demonstrating in the square? Well, one thing, one possibility is that the head of the National People's Congress, the so-called rubber stamp parliament, as it used to be called, it's much less rubber stamp now, um, uh, came back urgently from a trip from uh, he was doing in the United States, uh, and he was thought he was going to summon the National People's Congress Standing Committee. And what that would have meant was that a different body, in other words, a governmental body, a so-called legislative body, would have seized the opportunity to try and uh, bring the situation under control. And the party would have been powerless, because the party at the top was totally split. Uh, Wan Li, the man in question, was stopped at Shanghai on his way home and was persuaded to stay there for a few days and persuaded that what he was trying to do would not be right. I've got a minute before we pause for a quick newscast. <coughs> Can you, in, a, in that minute, uh, give us your overall estimate or prediction of what China's future will be in coming decades? Well, my own feeling is that the political system is fragile and that the demands of a rapidly developing, and that means a highly unstable uh, country, where society is no longer under control of the party, uh, is that at some point there will be an explosion. I don't see the party saying, oh, we've got to democratize. That's not what it's about. Um, but I don't think that they can keep the lid on this situation. Take, for instance, 1999. 10,000 members of the Falun Gong turn up on the government steps, and mm -hmm. no one knows they're coming. The public security had lost control. We've had members of the Falun Gong on this program, not uh, very long ago, as a matter of fact. Uh, we are about to pause. A quick round, or rather a quick rundown on the evening's news. And once again, our guest tonight is Roderick McFarquhar, who is the Leroy H. Williams Professor of History and Political Science. Uh, at the university, uh, at Harvard University. He has been the director of the John King Fairbank Center for East Asian Research at Harvard. And he has, in his time, served as a member of parliament in the United Kingdom and as a television presenter for the BBC and, of course, as a journalist for the Daily Telegraph, the Sunday Telegraph, and China Quarterly, which he edited for many years. Uh, his previous books include The Hundred Flowers Campaign. That's Let a Hundred Flowers Bloom, isn't it? Yep. Uh, and um, the secret speeches of Chairman Mao, China under Mao, and now, as co-author, Mao's Last Revolution, just published by Harvard uh, University Press. 591-7200 is our number. If you've been trying to reach us, try again. We've cleared a few lines, and they are available to you. Here is the first caller. Good evening. You're on the air. Hello? Yes, ma'am. Yes, uh, I am so excited to hear you speak. Um, I am very involved with China, and I do a lot of reading, a lot of history. Um, my take is more business, though. But what I found is, looking at what I've read about Mao and the Cultural Re Revolution and the Great Leap, is how it is affecting the people today. And I wonder if you have the same take. Now, I spend a lot of time in China. I probably spend four months a year over there. What do you do there, ma'am? Uh, business. And uh, because of the, my business, um, I also teach seminars and I write 
for magazines on the Chinese culture. And how do you find that the Cultural Revolution has affected the people you talk to? Well, I find that uh, in business they're afraid to ask questions. Uh, they're afraid to uh, say that they do not know the answer to questions. Uh, a lot of people think that this losing face is a myth, and I found just the opposite, that it's very prevalent over there. I, I would agree with losing face is still a problem, but it's actually a problem in many parts of the world, not just China's. Mm -hmm. But um, my experience of um, uh, people who went through the Cultural Revolution is that actually uh, they were inspired by Mao, if that's the right word, uh, to dare to think, dare to speak, and dare to act. And I think that what Mao did, which was good, uh, though it was in a terrible manner, uh, was to liberate a generation from thinking that they had to just obey the party orders. Hmm. Yeah, see, I'm seeing the opposite. I see where they don't ask questions. And I was told, now I have a lot of close friends over there, I have friends that have lived uh, through the Cultural Revolution, and it has affected, it had affected their families that were torn apart. And what I'm hearing is when they're in school, even today, they are encouraged not to ask questions, to listen. And those who do ask questions are deemed troublemakers. Well, it depends, of course, what they're asking questions about. I think I'd agree with you that uh, certain things that you're not supposed to ask questions about. I mean, I have students from China in my a lecture course on the Cultural Revolution, and they come up to me and they say, uh, we're so glad that we've taken this course because mum and dad never told us anything about this. Mm -hmm. So there is certainly, uh, people don't want to relive this, either because they were humiliated or because they did things of which they're now ashamed. And maybe there is that uh, cult of not speaking up about those things, but more generally in business, I would have thought and all the what I've been told about by other business people is that they are pretty dynamic. Yeah, uh, th they're dynamic, but what, I, uh, what I'm seeing is if they don't understand what you're trying to present or they don't fully understand the question, they have that reluctance to, to admit that they don't. Do you deal with them in Chinese or in English? In English. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, uh, it may be that they're, they're supposed to know English better than they actually do, and they don't want to expose their lack of knowledge to their colleagues. Yeah. Well, I actually found that a lot of... I, I spend a lot of time, like I said, and I have very close uh, people that I... I actually have an office over there. And what I find is they actually speak and understand English more than they let on. Ah. So, but uh, anyway, I, I can't wait to read your book. Um, Thank like you. I said, I, this is a fascinating uh, subject to me, and... Uh, I, sh I shouldn't say this because Harvard University Press will kill me, but you, you can get it at a great discount on Amazon. Well, I'm, I'm going to go. I have the computer up right now, and I'm going to look for it. We thank you for the call. Great. Thank v you. Very thank interesting you. contribution indeed. And quickly to another caller on 591-7200. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, from Mao, can we find a, a large amount of ineptness or a certain amount of evil when you consider the suffering and death tolls rival almost as much as Hitler and Stalin combined? Was he inept or evil, or both, or neither? I think that the uh, killing, uh, the, the chilling thing about it was that the killing didn't worry him. It wasn't that he was inept or evil in the sense of actually saying, let's kill off so many people. 
it was just that uh, killing was part of the process by which the young successors to his generation would learn how to make revolution. And uh, he just shrugged his shoulders. I mean, he didn't even do that. He didn't. I don't think he thought about it. It was just part of the revolutionary process. Proves that a little bit of Leninism went a long way to poison the mind. Right. Uh, particularly if there wasn't any barrier to uh, Leninism built up by a more sophisticated educational accomplishment. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's also true. But uh, I mean, the, but you've got to remember that the kids who started the killing, uh, the kids who were unleashed at the very beginning, were the best educated ones. No, I'm talking about talking about Mao himself. Oh, yeah. Um, he didn't have deep or thoroughgoing education, did he? Uh, he had a reasonable classical education, and then he spent a year in the library just educating himself mm. by reading foreign uh, translations of foreign uh, books. But he loved to he loved to humiliate intellectuals because he felt mm -hmm. he'd been humiliated by them, and he loved to quote history to his colleagues who didn't know any. He had never been out of China until he went to Moscow in, in late life. Isn't in forty nine, right? the, yeah. the first trip out of China. Yes. Hmm. Back to the phones five nine one seven two double zero. Good evening. You're on the air. Good evening, gentlemen. Thank you for entertaining my question. Yes, sir. As the doctor was talking earlier about China's future, it raised some questions. It sounds very tenuous for what's going to happen with them, but my question is regard, in regards to the religious persecution. And I'm wondering if you'd comment on this. What does the, the ongoing persecution against Christians say about what's happening in China? It, do you believe it's because of their insecurity, their fear, and does it show a disregard for America, not believing that we're going to enforce any sanctions against them because of what they're doing? I think that's two very interesting uh, questions there, the second one being the one about America. Um, I think that one of the problems that has arisen in post-Mao China as a result of what Deng Xiaoping's done, that is to say, putting doctrine aside because it wasn't the way to develop China. You couldn't look at a Marxist textbook and find out how this 19th century intellectual could advise you on how to develop China in the 21st century. I think one of the factors of losing Marxism and Leninism as an all-embracing doctrine that told you about the present and the future is that there is a great big ideological vacuum in China. And that is why people have turned to Christianity in numbers which the missionaries could never even have dreamt of. And that is why sects like the Falun Gong have been so popular, because people know that you don't live by rice alone. Mm. And that's why the, the regime is very frightened, because they don't want there to be a rival ideology to the ideology that they have now lost. That is interesting, and that would explain why they're more concerned about the Christians in the urban settings than they are in the rural areas. Well, they're concerned about them everywhere, and but they are concerned about the rural areas because, of course, the rural areas was where they raised their armies against uh, the nationalists. Uh, on your second question, which is about the uh, Americans uh, levying sanctions on them for what they do to Christians and human rights and so on, the experience of the last 20 years and a number of different presidents of different parties suggests that the United States is not going to do anything uh, on the on those subjects except protest. 
Well, we have got much involved with them economically, not uh, merely as a government, but of course a good deal of American corporate uh, organizations are doing their manufacturing in China. Right. And also selling a lot to China. That's right. And uh, uh, when uh, President Clinton uh, decided to end the annual debate on whether to give China most favored nation treatment, it was because of the pressure of American business on him. They said, you know, let's stop this nonsense because we do too much work with them. And when President Clinton saw a way to get some Chinese money indirectly flowing into his re-election campaign, he managed to uh, get around federal law, which prevented sharing with them uh, information technology of the sort that helped to develop uh, guided missile uh, operations. It's a very complex uh, story, it's true. And uh, uh, all sorts of deals are being made, which the United States may regret at some time in the future. It has been pointed out by many critics of Clinton that that is one deal that we already have reason to regret. We pause for a last round of commercials, then directly back to Roderick McFarquhar and your questions to him on 591-7200. And back to the phones on 591-7200 in an instant, but let me read you one or two emails that we've got in front of us. Uh, here's one from a Chinese person by the name that is signed, whether uh, uh, an immigrant or a part-time resident, I don't know. But uh, the question is, what do you think uh, China's political future holds? Is the one-party system going to hold for a long time? I think that the easiest thing to predict, because predicting, especially about the future, as someone once said, is always risky. I think the easiest thing to predict is to say that the president will continue into the future. And I have colleagues who have established theoretical bases for saying that. Um, my own feeling is that the system is fragile, as I've said and that uh, the needs of the 21st century will make it increasingly difficult for a party which is delegitimized because of the Cultural Revolution to hold on to power forever. Now, here's another question by email. Uh, what does your guest think over the next 20 years or so will be China's relationship with... <coughs> blessings on you. With whom? With the United States, mainly in terms of economic issues, military power, and world hegemony in general. I see China in terms of massive and extensive competition on several levels. We need to culti cultivate them as ally and friend. I think that um, there's no question that the Chinese see themselves as one day, they wouldn't specify when, being the leading superpower in the world and overtaking the United States. Um, oh, the United States has got to do what Mao used to recommend to his colleagues. It's got to walk on two legs. One leg is the leg of engagement, economic engagement. The other leg is the mm. leg of wariness, wariness that China is not, in fact, going to try and do uh, rise to uh, a superpower status by military means, but rather by its very, very strong economic development. You know, this question, as we, as I've just read it, brings to my mind uh, the work of a colleague of yours in the Department of Political Science at Harvard, namely Sam Huntington, who in his work on the clash of civilizations these days is understood to have talked about um, uh, the West and the Islamic world, and he does indeed. But also, he sees a number of possible civilizational clashes, and the other one that he deals with in that famous book of his is between the West and particularly the United States and China. He's, well, Sam sees that as virtually inevitable. 
Well, I think it's it's inevitable in this sense that the Chinese are a proud people with a long history and an amazing capacity at the moment for economic development. And uh, they now see the future, which they have long for, for over a century, namely a return to dominance in the world, which is what they had for millennia. Um, and the United States, for its part, sees itself as the surviving superpower and has a mission to uh, maintain the democratic system and to try and promote its development in elsewhere in the world. And these two civilizations are bound to be opposed. Can't you, in fact, hold together a nation of a billion and a half people uh, with many regional differences and with... Uh, inevitably a bureaucracy that doesn't work, at least if it's centralized, when the nation is so vast. Well, I think that the the right way to govern China with that many people and with the encouragement of localities to approve their own dynamism and develop their own uh, their own systems in at uh, the regional level, I think the way to do that is by decentralizing mm. government. But the Communist Party of China is a very centralized organization. And it would see decentralization of the type you're hinting at as being a way of losing power. All communist regimes that. have always been centralized. Absolutely. Yeah. And the Chinese Communist Party is today a lot weaker than it was in the 1950s, 40, 50 years ago. But it does not want to get any weaker. And so it's trying to centralize. I mean, what we're seeing at this very moment, the purge of the Shanghai Party by... President and General Secretary Hu Jintao is not just a curbing of regional power, it's also a, a, an effort to say, I, Hu Jintao, the President and General Secretary, I run China, mm -hmm. and you're going to have to listen to me, even in Shanghai, which is so powerful and rich. Will they listen to him? Do they listen to him? Well, he's managed to kick out already the top man, and I think he will succeed in purging that party. The, what he can do because corruption is so endemic now in the Chinese system, is to accuse people of corruption. Almost anyone has got some problem in of this type. It's a safe accusation wherever you turn, I gather. Right. That's true in certain American cities as well. Right. Five nine one seven two double zero. the number. Here's the next caller. Hello, you're on the air. Hi, um, thank you for the show. And um, I have a friend whose dad uh, just moved their plant for the company he works for to China. I'd heard him say, um, saying something like paying workers like 30 cents an hour. There's people lined up. There's no benefits, no commitment. Um, they just, the next person in line, if something happens, um, it seems like a global race to the bottom with exploiting workers. I was wondering if you could comment on working conditions in China, just also anything people can do about that. It seems like everything we, everything we buy now, um, you know, phones, appliances, clothes are all made in China. Uh, at Walmart's, I learned this a while ago, 80% of what is sold over the counters at Walmart's is made in China. Yeah. I have a Walmart on the, ro on the road to my place in New Hampshire, and mm -hmm. I can confirm that. Yeah. I think even the rifles come from China. Um, yes, it's true that America is going to lose jobs. The, you know, the classical economists will say that this is all good because uh, the people in America will get higher paid jobs doing different things which America is better at. But in the short run, of course, it's enormously... Uh, disruptive and harmful to uh, workers and families in this country. Um, I think that you have to look at it, uh, you say improve working conditions. 
The point about Chinese peasants who move into the cities, as they have done in enormous millions over the last 25 years, is that anything they can earn in a city in China is just better than the life to which they're condemned by working in the countryside. And so if you, you can't price them out because they will do anything to get that job. And it's really keeping them down rather than raising them up. If you say you can only work for, say, $5 an hour instead of 30 cents an hour, um, that is keeping them down. They're prepared to do it. And the working conditions in many factories, including factories run by foreigners, though not, I think, by Americans by and large, um, are terrible. Conditions are terrible. The conditions in the coal mines, which are all owned by Chinese, are terrible. People get die all the time because the coal mines are so unsafe. But people want to have a better life, and they want to get out of the countryside. They want to get into the factories. Our thanks to the caller. We have only about two minutes left. Um, let one academic indulge himself talking to another academic. What is academic life like in China right now? Academic life is much better than ever was. And if you talk to academics who you think might want more democracy, uh, I remember a conversation with one very, very um, sophisticated woman. And she said, you know, under the Communist Party, we've been run by peasants for 50 years. If we have democracy, we'll be run by peasants even more. And the intellectuals of China, I think, feel that they've come back to their rightful place as the advisors and the runners of government. And they don't want to lose that place. And certain universities, Peking University, Tsinghua, the MIT of China, and so on, the enormous quantities of money are being poured in by the Chinese and by overseas Chinese. And they are becoming very powerful uh, places for education. The only problem is that they still can't think for themselves on certain issues, politics, society, and so on. So some disciplines would function more effectively, the hard sciences would, than, say, the social sciences. Right, right. But even the hard sciences, you've got to... You must remember that the one Japanese Nobel Prize winner in science said that if he hadn't been at MIT, he wouldn't have been able to do mm -hmm. it in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, is literature free in the sense of exploratory and open, or is it still constrained in a quasi-Stalinist way? Society is generally sort of out of control, and a, a, a rule of thumb is if you don't go to Tiananmen Square and denounce the Communist Party, uh -huh. you can do what you want. Soft porn is published. Real porn is published. Hmm. Uh, certain, the, the present regime has tried to tighten things up uh, compared with the previous Jiang Zemin regime, but uh, not totally successfully. We have come to the end of the available time, and I thank you most sincerely. It's been, for me, an exceptionally interesting conversation.